we only see the second half of our parents' lives, the downhill part, the golden years we have to piece together. Um, it's the opening line of my new book, which is all about my parents, uh, called Romany and Tom, and um, there they are. Uh, that was taken in 1961, uh, the year before I was born, at Sandgate in Kent. And I would say that was a golden year for them, and I certainly, I like that picture very much. But what is it that I mean by that opening line? I think I mean that our parents are usually, for most of us, in our 30s or or 40s when we first become aware of them, when we're seven, eight, nine, ten years old and becoming aware of them as people. And I think a large part of their life has already passed, an important part perhaps, perhaps even a golden part. And I realized that for myself, I'd, I'd witnessed my parents' decline. Um, I'd witnessed my dad's raging in his 50s when he finally realized that um, his jazz career was never coming back. And I witnessed the fortitude of my mum who tried to hold it all together. And later I watched with some tenderness the way they rallied in their 60s and moved out of London um, in the late 1980s to Oxford and had the best part of 10 really good years together. And then I watched the frailty and the resignation of their 70s as they handed responsibility over to me and I was in charge. And I wondered, I wondered why it had struck me when it did, which was a couple of years ago in 2012 when I was 49. And I wondered if it was to do with cresting some kind of hill myself. What, what was exactly ahead of me? I mean, I'm here now, I'm 51, I have a book out, I have my first solo album coming out next month, my first solo album for 31 years. I have filled the interim with other things, but um, it still seems quite strange reconnecting with a boy of 19. And I ask myself, how golden is it still going to be? How much can I still claim or even reclaim? Now, teenage kids, they don't make it any easier. Self-absorbed, dismissive. They certainly know how to put you in your place. Our kids, they couldn't care less who we are. I was traveling in, in the car with my daughters, taking them to school. Uh, they were 14 or 15 at the time. And it was London traffic, eight o'clock in the morning. I was typical grumpy old man, moaning at Radio 4 or someone in their car, or just a good old rant. And my daughter was sitting very quietly next to me, letting me get on with all of this casually leafing through a book. And when she thought I'd finished, she just turned to me and she said, 
Times have changed, Lord Grantham. <laughs> so what about, what about my parents' times? Um, could I somehow piece together their golden years and what kind of light would they throw? Well, this is a picture probably of my mum and her biggest golden year. That's 1950. And the portrait is taken by Angus McBain. She was 26. To use the common X-factor parlance, she'd followed her dream. When the war was ended in 1945, she went straight to RADA in her uniform. And by 1948, she was married to a bookish theatre critic. And in 1950, after a couple of years in rep, had landed a place as one of only six women in a 66-strong company at the Memorial Theatre, Stratford-upon-Avon. She was a walk-on in plays that starred people like John Gilgood, Alan Bedell. Um, she was walking on with people of her own age who went on to become stars like Robert Shaw, uh, the director was Anthony Quayle, the production was by Peter Brook. And by a lot of people's standards, it was a total golden moment in British theatre history. But then what happened? Well, what happened was kids. And five years later, she found herself with four of them. Three at one time. And all of whom were the man she loved, but wasn't lit up by. Not easy. But who was there to light her up? Who do you think? There he is at the piano at the back. Tommy Watt, 1957. Quaglinos. In its heyday, the Tommy Watt Quintet. I would say that's probably my dad's golden year. He'd come to London after the war, a working class Glasgow jazz musician who'd shed his accent. He was in search of the big time. He'd picked up piano gigs. He'd played with Ronnie Monroe. He'd played with Harry Roy at the Café de Paris. And he was biding his time for his big moment, yearning to be a band leader. And in 1956, he ran into his old mate from the RAF, the actor-manager, Brian Ricks, who'd just made a pile of money acting in the Whitehall farces. And Brian was a secret, huge jazz fan. And he paid for a demo for my dad to record at Levy's Sound Studio. He recorded his first jazz orchestra. And the tape so impressed the BBC that they gave him a slot on the radio. And that led to a two-album deal with George Martin at Parlophone. And finally, his own show on the BBC called Time For What? <laughs> and of course, Quaglinos, and he was the youngest band leader in London at the time, which was quite a big thing, 31. He was also married. He married straight after the war. Um, one of those sort of euphoric post-war marriages. They were only in their early 20s, and he realized he didn't love her either and they didn't have kids. So my mum and dad finally met 
with them both in separate marriages at a New Year's Day party in 1957. And they began a torrid affair. And it was always skated over during my years growing up. There were always jokes about the irresistibility of my dad, um, the inevitability of the outcome. And when I actually did the research into the book, I suddenly became aware of the human scale of that affair because it took five years. And that's a long time. And there were five very difficult years. Secret assignations, wounded partners, confused children, collateral damage. But finally, I was born in 1962, six months after the divorce papers finally came through, and six weeks after my dad narrowly avoided a jail sentence for drugs possession outside Ronnie Scott's. Let's say it was a hasty and somewhat unhappy wedding. But here they are, just after I was born, looking very glamorous in a photo shoot for She magazine. And I think this is how they like to be perceived. And then what? Well, for my dad, if 1957 had been his golden year, it all kind of dropped away. He was 37, and looking back, he'd hit the crest of the hill. Rock and roll was basically barging ensemble jazz, jazz orchestras. It was barging them into the past. And he wasn't interested in, in running after it or moving into pop or becoming a... Uh, okay, thanks. Um, or moving into... I thought you were stopping me. <laughs> Enough. <laughs> it's too much. He wasn't interested in moving into pop or um, becoming a light entertainment TV arranger. He was at home a lot um, when I was first going to school, which of course was nice for me, uh, perhaps less so for him. Um, here's a picture of us in the garden. But by the early 70s, he realized that jazz was no longer the place that would have him. And um, he became a painter and a decorator before the full realization of what he'd lost hit him. And things got very difficult. For my mum, she knuckled down um, and carved out a second career for herself as a showbiz feature writer and columnist. Um, she was traveling abroad a lot, interviewing film stars. And by the 1970s, she was picking up huge exclusives with Burton and Taylor, which certainly paid for my upbringing. There she is with Richard Burton. That's in Mexico in 1970. But it can't have been easy. Two careers going at different speeds, on different gradients, 
my mum going uphill and my dad going down. And maybe my new book and my new album next month is, is my attempt to somehow keep going uphill, not to be barged into the past like my dad or Lord Grantham. To find a new string to my bow, maybe, like my mum. We only see the second half of our parents' lives, the downhill part, the golden years we have to piece together. I thought I'd end literally with a golden moment that I have pieced together. Until recently, the only recorded evidence I had of um, my dad in his true heyday were his recordings with this band, the 42 Jazz Band, which he did in the early 60s, which he was incredibly proud of. Um, and we had two singles in the house that he used to play whenever I asked him what the good stuff was. But he also had a worn out acetate of the band in its prime just after this, which got so much play in our house that it's become absolutely unplayable. But a couple of weeks ago, I sent it to Abbey Road Studios and with the wonders of modern mastering, it's been denoised and restored and quite literally pieced together. And back in its former glory, it's a piece my dad wrote called Mons Calpi. There he is with my mum in Gibraltar, very near Mons Calpi. And I reckon he must have written it very close to this period. And I thought I'd end by playing it to you tonight. It also features a very lovely piano solo by him in the middle. And this is a world exclusive. Um, so I'm going to end with it. Tommy Watt and his orchestra, Mons Calpi. Thanks for listening.
Thank you very much.